Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. It's not just smoking. It's the alcohol. It's also the diet and other things we're now getting a better handle on understanding. So as we march down this road, yeah, I think that having a health system that allows us not just to focus on the miracle drugs and miracle cures, but access to not only good and fresh fruits, but access to healthy living styles like being able to move. Here with the director of the Massey Cancer Center on mankind's constantly morphing battle against the big C. Plus, fighting hate while fighting cancer. A special episode. Please stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link FullDRadio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend us to friends and family. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me in studio in downtown Richmond, and gosh, it feels so great to be back after, what, 20 months or so, is Dr. Robert Wynn, director of VCU's Massey Cancer Center. This is designated by the National Cancer Institute as one of 71 designees that provides advanced cancer care, conducts Pivotal research to discover new therapies for cancer and offers high-quality education and training. How are you, Dr. Wynn, finally? <laughs> I'm really glad to be here, and thank you so much um, for the invitation of being on with I'm you. I'm elated to have you on. This is like rechristening the studio. Hopefully, we can, <laughs> you can keep this going on with the variant and whatnot. Uh, you've been here since uh, late 2019, so you really had to hit the ground running with COVID. Uh, you know, in, in 2019, it was an interesting year because I thought the biggest thing was that, you know, and 2019, I became the only African-American active cancer center director of an NCI-designated cancer center and really was just getting things ramped up and rolling. Uh, and by January and February, you know, I was looking at everything that was ahead. And then a little thing called COVID happened. And so mm. I have to be honest with you, it certainly has um, changed a number of my plans. Uh, but in some ways, I think it's actually made me wiser uh, and we're doing things maybe even better as a result of COVID, to be quite honest with you. So it's it's again, I'll be glad to have COVID over with, but there are some silver linings as a result of having COVID here to make us just pause a little bit. Doctor, I got to ask you, going back to medical school, and I've asked multiple doctors, we've had the Surgeon General on the program, we've had Henrico and Richmond's uh, health director on, did they prepare you for this in medical school? I mean, how much of medical school, and you, you teach students, you mentor students, has to do with pandemic preparedness or, uh, you know, reading 1917 or the bubonic plague? Yeah, you know, you bring up a good point. This whole concept of preparedness, were we prepared? We weren't. There were a few of us that may have had been battle tested in certain other areas, those people particularly who do infectious disease. But the vast majority of doctors are not infectious disease doctors. They're just regular guys. I mean, in folk, you know, critical care guys, family medicine people, people like me, you know, cancer-focused folks. So we were not prepared. And the other thing that's really interesting is that I wish we probably put more history back into medicine so that we don't um, ever get caught again thinking that, well, this is the only time this has happened. You know, I think by understanding the history, particularly that of the, you know, the 1918 flu, I think had we mostly known that and had we been more aware of that, we'd have been better prepared for the pandemic that we're currently in. 
take me back to when you realized this was absolutely dead serious. I think for Vox Populi and, and you know, from a popular culture perspective, the night the NBA postponed the season and other universities saying we're punting on the spring semester made people realize this was dead serious. Yeah, I think for me, um, it got real dead serious when we started seeing our numbers increasing in the hospital and when we were really certain that it was COVID-related. I think the second phase of knowing that it was really real was in the manner in which it was spreading. I have to say that uh, while I'm certainly concerned about the Delta variant, we have to, and certainly it's spreading as well. But I would say one thing. Back uh, early on, when we were losing over 3,400 people, really a day dying from COVID, that had to get people's attention. And I think the first case in Washington was, I think, got people interested, it piqued their interest, thought it would may have been a passing fancy or like some of the other ones. But this was not like any of the other ones, H1N1 or other the other things that we actually have had. This was different. You are indeed a professor of pulmonary disease and critical care medicine. I mean, this intimately involves the lungs, This, you know, the spike proteins and everything that kind of make their way to eviscerate the lungs. We've seen the x-rays. We've seen the stories of heart transplants and intubation. So it kind of you know hits you right in the chest. Actually, this one was interesting because not only did you actually have the pulmonary disease, which goes with any respiratory pandemic type deals, you know, back to the Spanish flu of 1918, but this one was different. This one we ultimately had to learn on the fly. Um, we also understood as a critical care doc that not only was this attacking your lungs, but it's attacking your vascular system. I mean, remember we had, I think uh, his name was Nick Cordero or uh, Cordero, um, Cordero yeah. right? Amanda Clutes. Yeah, exactly. Husband. He died. Ultimately, before he even died, he had these vascular occlusions. He lost his limbs. We were seeing young people with strokes. So early on, we recognized that this was certainly a respiratory illness that was attacking the lung aggressively. But we also knew that it was much more than that, that the endothelial system, the very vasculature that we depend on for keeping your limbs alive and all these other things were actually being attacked. And I think this, again, gave us pause and, uh, and brought uh, our attention up to a next level in um, pulmonary and critical care uh, throughout the country. And as you know, doctor, it was a particularly mentally brutal year for the immunocompromised, which includes the, the millions of people getting cancer treatment, radiotherapy, um, immunotherapy, chemotherapy, who couldn't see their loved ones, who had to, you had these pictures of people with the drip and the port looking out the window as loved ones waved to them and held up posters. So it was a matter of, you know, in your case, very immediately coming into Richmond is almost literally cordoning off the cancer center from the outside world. Oh, that's for sure. And, and you know, the other thing that I have to say on a personal level really continues to get my dander up, if you will, is that we do have immunocompromised people. And the sometimes disregard and disrespect that one can bring viruses to them, people who are trying to do everything the right way, right, who just come in contact with someone who either doesn't know or doesn't care has been devastating. We've been really fighting on two struggles. One, obviously COVID. The other one's cancer. And as a result of COVID, we have countless number of people who have been afraid to come into the hospitals. Mm. So how many people with early cancers are now sitting at home 
undiagnosed because they were afraid to get their regular checkups. I mean, it has been an incredible disruptor for many of us. And those people who are immunocompromised on cancer, oh, my God, those first couple days of uh, weeks and months of should we have them on COVID? Shouldn't they get COVID? Luckily, most of that stuff has been figured out. And if you're a cancer patient, you absolutely should be on uh, COVID uh, vaccinations. Um, But in the early days, we didn't know. But what I didn't know all the way was that we have sick people who are immunocompromised, and it's our collective responsibility to keep one another healthy, and that wasn't always happening. Mm. Dr. Robert Wynn, VCU Massey Cancer Center Director uh, since late 2019, I have to put you on the hot seat in that we are in downtown Richmond. You are in downtown Richmond, and you descended into this uh, very prestigious uh, cancer program, which, as you say, is designated as one of the 71 by the National Cancer Institute in Tobacco Town, USA, I couldn't resist because a polite, you know, polite Richmond, bless your soul, charity dinner Richmond does not like to point out the fact that Altria, the parent of Philip Morris, is your neighbor because they're called a good neighbor. They're very generous with the arts and entertainment and everything, but they are still the biggest cigarette manufacturer in the United States. And tobacco is, according to the FDA, I think still the biggest cause of preventable death in the United States. The adverse health effects, according to the FDA, from tobacco use can cause nearly a half a million deaths each year in the United States. Smoking is a major cause of cardiovascular disease. Smoking causes one of every three deaths from cardiovascular disease, one of every three cancer deaths. And these are still multinational, multi-multi-billion dollar businesses in the year 2021. Yeah, I mean, my stance is always going to be the same. Smoking causes cancer, period. And it doesn't matter the type of cigarette. Smoking causes cancer. We actually also recognize something around menthol, right? When it comes to at-risk populations like African-American, turns out that the experiment had already been done. That What happens if you ban menthol? Turns out that some people were addicted or appreciated the menthol taste. More than the nicotine. More than the nicotine. So in Canada, they did a study where they said, we're going to ban menthol-flavored-type cigarettes. Turns out that they actually had more people quitting cigarettes altogether. And yet, we actually have our companies, as you say, right in the backyard, where we're talking about flavored-type cigarettes, where we're talking about the menthol cigarettes. So the recent ban is a first step, but not the only step that we need to take in making sure that, again, that, you know, again, my attitude is that cigarettes cause cancer. They do. I, the data are the data. Um, one can argue um, about the freedom of choice, and, yeah, that's great, but the data are consistent. Cigarette smoking is directly associated to not just interesting enough um, lung cancer, pancreatic but, cancer, oh, come on, and the, all these all other the other ones that and cardiovascular disease and neural COPD. disease and all the COPD. So the reality is, if we had a world without tobacco, I'd be okay with that. So my son, you know, at night when I'm tucking him in, he comes up with all these existential questions. It could be about war and peace and suffering and the electoral college. He inevitably asks me how cigarettes are still legal, why they're legal. I, well, you know, I think like many things that are still legal. You know, I mean, one could even make the argument for round alcohol or all these other. Other things. I mean, the truth of the matter is that why they're still legal befuddles me. But my job as a cancer center director is to continue to um, lend my voice to understanding that I want to eradicate cancer. I want to eradicate disparities, and I'd like to eradicate the you know the presence of tobacco um, uh, in in the United States or wherever or globally. To be quite honest with you, I do think that tobacco, unfortunately, is still part of our culture, and but hopefully it will become less and less over time. 
There was a brief kind of fork in the road, especially with Altria, which took an enormous stake in Juul, the big vaping company, which I know you've been following, that you can separate the nicotine from the other 70 or so carcinogenic chemicals. And if you're just giving people kind of freebase nicotine, it's not nearly as bad as the combustible product. But then you saw there was this big blowback with uh, high schoolers and middle schoolers and Juul and pulmonary issues, especially at the outset of COVID. You saw people out there with more time on their hands saying, I wonder if I should return back to traditional cigarettes if we're all kind of on tenterhooks about lung preparedness, right? Oh, no, that's for sure. I mean, it was an, it's been an interesting journey. As you sort of say, even with the, um, the combustibles, there, we've seen unusual related lung issues with that. Probably that's about some of the things that the products that are actually inside the pipe as well. So uh, a, lot, a lot more investigation certainly needs to go on. But reality is, for me, I, I, no smoking is, is the best thing to do. Do you think the FDA is going to regulate down the amount of nicotine in cigarettes? This has kind of been bandied about for a few years. And if that'll have negative consequences or people will seek the, the big fix elsewhere. Well, I remind hopeful. I think if we can actually start with the menthol, which we have. And remember, if you talked about menthol or flavored cigarettes in the 1970s, 80s and 90s, you sort of said, well, you're going to get rid of those. And people would have said the same thing. I don't think it's going to happen. I think, again, starting with the um, regulation of banning menthol, I think we're on the first steps. And I think that there are other things like reducing the amount of nicotine and things that are now possible, um, but will certainly take a consistent uh, sort of effort to try to figure out how do we um, get the needle moved, if you will. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Dr. Robert Wynn, Director and Littman Chair in Oncology at the VCU Massey Cancer Center here in Central Virginia. Uh, you've been here since late 2019, kind of parachuted in uh, right before this kind of once-in-a-hundred-year uh, pandemic. And a lot of people have been talking about uh, cancers and the immunocompromised. And uh, unfortunately, as you know, in those first couple of months in coming here, what became an elective procedure had to become really discretionary. If a person was going to go in and get a mole or something excised, was watching a, a melanoma or something else, it was it was really backburner to some of the more pressing things. People who put off uh, colonoscopies, various procedures, other things, preventive medicine. We know that coming out of this that a lot of doctors have complained that there's such a backlog of, of appointments. Uh, there is a huge backlog. And um, Ned Sharpless and folks from the NIH you know, wrote the paper that sort of said we expect, what, 10 to 20 more thousand people to sort of die um, as a result, and that's in each of the diseases, as a result of not being able to screen. I think we now um, are much more aware as we're getting through, and didn't say getting over yet, but getting through COVID, that we are putting on a back-to-screening campaign. Mm. The truth of the matter is, again, screening and prevention, not the same thing. When I talk about prevention, I'm talking about behaviors, how you eat, getting exercise, all the rest of that. And by the way, in COVID, one of the things we keep talking about is the vaccine, which is critical to the success of our getting through COVID. But exercise was actually important, too. And it turns out that prevention and these things are important. But getting back to this concept of screening, the truth of the matter is we can save save many, many more lives if we were more active about screening. And I think that all over the country now, NCI-designated cancer centers, other cancer centers, the American Cancer Society, and many others are actually now shouting at the top of their lungs, get back to screening because we need to. Uh, which screening out there, if you're broadly existentially worried about cancer, can – I mean, a, a median adult take under control. I mean, you can get your skin checked. You can get lung x-rays. You can certainly get a colonoscopy, which is invasive and uncomfortable in the prep. Uh, what are what are things you could do? Do these for the answer, these these body scan things? Are is there any currency to them? Yeah. Do they so, work? So so here are the, the ones that I'm, I'm going to take the screens, 
that no one should die from. And cervical. Mm. We can get tested for cervical screening right now. There's no woman in the United States or no woman on the globe that should die from cervical cancer. And yet it continues to happen. Lack of screening. So we're going to be pushing the envelope and figuring out. Is this out, an OBGYN pap smear that can detect chiefly? That's right. Just a, you know, just a pap smear. Or we're actually moving and hopefully moving the needle to swabs at some point mm. where they women can actually do it in the privacy of their own home to make it more um, uh, reliable that they can get screened. Screening matters. Second, colorectal cancer. You know, people talk about, oh, my God, you know, I have to get a colonoscopy. But, right. But that's not the only way. This is where you get the fit test and the, and the cola guard. So the old school thing of thinking that there's only one way of screening, particularly for cervical and colon, are out the door. In fact, the numbers would show that those states that adopted the ACA, the expansion, and expanded and it ultimately also expanded um, you know, screening programs save lives relative to those states that chose not to go be part of the ACA or the expansion programs. So the, 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 the evidence is not debatable. We know that screening in some ways can certainly help, particularly around colorectal cervical. So let's get to the other ones. Breast cancer. Breast cancers definitely has been seen to show and save many lives of women, as well as lung cancer screening now, which, you know, up, when I trained back in the, God knows, back in the old centuries, in the 80s and 90s, we used to actually talk about screening for lung cancer. And we, there were a bunch of trials, the Mayo clinical trial that showed that screening was of no use. In fact, the x-rays that we were using and the sputums we were using were almost of, of no, not almost, they were of really no use. But the low-dose CAT scan we're asking you just to sit into a CAT scan, not even for X number of minutes, to see whether we can figure out a spot on your lung and whether that spot is actually going to grow. That takes almost no time. So when it comes to prostate cancer, lung, skin cancer, there are many cancers that we can screen for. But let me be honest. There are a couple we can't. And this is where sometimes I think the hopes of modern-day uh, medicine actually gets confused with our reality and our capabilities. We can't screen for pancreatic that we can't screen for. Many of the neurocancers, the astrocytomas and the glios, we can't screen for those. Hopefully one day we will, but at the current moment, those ones that we can screen for, there is no excuse for none of us to not get screened. Let me ask you, uh, what should you, you, you have so much to unpack here. I'm thinking about colorectal cancer. This is a matter of catching precancerous polyps in the large intestine. And if you could essentially nip it in the bud early, you, you have a huge uh, chance of prevailing against the malignancy down the line. But there's been a tremendous amount of confusion over when insurance covers it. Should it be 40, 45 for a male? What if you're an African-American male with a higher risk factor, family history, um, you know, there, there isn't, there isn't a, a, a one directive out there that says vehemently 45-year-old males should have this covered by their insurance companies for a full, even if it's invasive, there's nothing that beats an invasive uh, colonoscopy. There's a lot of confusion even among my cohort. I'm 45. Right. Well, the interesting thing is we have the brand new guidelines that have come out that suggest that people at 45 for both um, lung um, and for both Colorectal cancers should be screened. So the fuzziness or the grayness of who should get screened, particularly around colorectal and lung, are becoming much more clear. Second, when it comes to African-Americans or other at-risk populations, we certainly have known uh, in, in, uh, by just imperative data you know, um, that 
folks have been getting cancers at an early age. Worst can- I mean, look at what happened to Chaswick Boseman, right? Shocked right? everyone that he suffered in isolation and a person who was literally a superhero. A, literally a superhero. But, you know, I, I juxtaposed that with Will Smith, who recently was like, yeah, I'm going to get that colonoscopy or I'm going to get that and found that he had an early polyp that could actually turn into a cancer. We need to get more of those messages out that the best defense against cancer, yeah, we have miracle drugs for advanced cancer and all the rest of these, but the best treatment for any cancer is to catch it early. That's still the rule of thumb. Doctor, I'm thinking about um, the late Patrick Swayze, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, gosh, you know, uh, Luciano Pavarotti, all the different, Aretha Franklin, uh, people who we all know, and in fact, you know, relatives and friends who have succumbed to pancreatic cancer. Recently, Alex Trebek of Jeopardy. This seems to be, I think, the one cancer where the trajectory is puzzling and troubling, that it's very hard to detect. I mean, how many people know their pancreas? Well, it's this, you know, small, what is it, f- small fish type thing near right. the spine. There's no manifestation of it. You hear these stories of people that get a pain near their spine and they're jaundiced and suddenly it's all downhill and it's it's a stage four thing. Give me an update on this enigma. You hear about it a lot in the news and that people that pass away from it because pancreatic has become such a death sentence. Right. So when I think about pancreatic, I think we could have been having the same discussion around many of the other cancers. In fact, had you gone back to the 1990s or early uh, 2001, we'd have been saying the same exact thing about lung cancer. Hmm. Not only are we now talking about lung cancer as being you know, screened for when there wasn't any really screening activities, but God, God knows we weren't really talking about any you know, miracle therapies. We only had one. So this is the importance of research. So why I'm I'm so excited about the possibility of us better understanding pancreas is because we are now assembling teams across the country, and Massey is no exception. We just recruited an amazing person in the context of pancreatic cancer, and we're recruiting two or three other folk to really have a epicenter here of better understanding the mechanisms of, of how does one even get pancreatic cancer, and two, when you get it, how to treat it. But number three is how do we detect it early? Because obviously there's going to be something that the pancreas is hiding from us now, but that I think that by looking at the blood and looking at cells and looking at other mechanisms early and imaging things, we're going to come up with 10, maybe 20 years from now, but similar to lung I think we are also going to be able to, within a decade or so, be able to say we also have an ability to screen for pancreatic cancer and to treat it and to treat it effectively. Mm -hmm. So, again, if you go back in time, we don't have to go back that far. We could have had the same exact discussion around lung and lung and and pancreas were neck and neck on what was the worst. And now we can actually think about lung in a context of we can treat it by immunotherapy. Who knew? And number two, we have imaging, like CAT scans that we can now check. I predict that within the next 10 to 15 years, we'll certainly have much more progress than we have now with pancreas because we're having a better understanding of the molecular nature of how that cancer works. We're not there yet, but we're making some progress. Is there part of you, and this is speculation, that wonders if that too is a lifestyle-linked incidence of diagnosis and that such an explosion of type 2 diabetes in adults and uh, the pancreas being so key to the metabolism and 
and insulin and everything that it just might be overloaded. I mean, I I always I, I wonder when someone like Alex Trebek is diagnosed and he's out there talking about it, or Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and something so small and even a small adenocarcinoma at the head of uh, something that's kind of inside and tucked away can effectively be a death sentence. Can effectively be a death sentence. And in fact, that the matter is you just hit on something. Alcohol is associated with cancer. We didn't know that 20, 30 years ago. We understand that obesity. It's probably interesting that we think about tobaccos and cigarettes, but probably over the next 10 years, it will be replaced by the number one sort of contributor of, of cancer is probably going to be associated with obesity. And so obesity with pancreatic cancer, obesity with many other things is an issue. It's a national issue. It's actually probably even a global issue, depending on where you look at it. Um, so we understand that obesity is important. It's not just smoking. It's the alcohol. It's also the diet and other things. We're now getting a better handle on understanding. So as we march down this road, yeah, I think that having a health system that allows us not just to focus on the miracle drugs and miracle cures, but access to not only good and fresh fruits, but access to healthy living styles like being able to move. Many people, you know, again, we wag our fingers, you know, at people. Oh, my God. You know, if only you should you should get out and get some exercise. But in some of our communities, where? Where? There, there are communities that are absolutely taxed that just can't go out to a Y and actually get on a rower, right? And so we are going to have to make, I think, the ease of physical activities much easier. I think we're going to have to actually be relearn how to eat. I mean, all of us. I mean, especially during this pandemic. I mean, many of us have been like, listen, we never recognize how much our walking from the office and to the table and to other people's offices actually mattered in our overall health. But we are going to have to figure out a way how our behaviors also can be uh, improved so we can actually have some defense against um, cancer. But I do want to say this. Remember that cancer isn't just all what you do. It's a, it's a, it's a disease of aging. So... Sometimes you'll look at people and say, oh, my God, they did everything right, and yet they got cancer. What did they do wrong? They didn't. Cancer, by definition, is also a chronic disease of aging. So when you get into your 80s and 90s, it's not unusual that you'll see people with cancers. They died from other things, but they were living with cancer. So I just want to dispel this myth that health is not the absence of of cancer cells in your body, or health is not the absence of disease, it means, how do you keep that in proportion? This show podcasts to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. And we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Full D Radio. If you're just joining us, we are talking to Dr. Robert Wynn. He is director of the VCU Massey Cancer Center. It's one of 71 uh, National Cancer Institute-designated centers that provides advanced cancer care, conducts groundbreaking research to discover new therapies for cancer. It's really, you know, it, it punches above Richmond's uh, weight class, if you will. It's a, a very prestigious thing to have here. Uh, tell me when you got the call, how you were recruited to come here. You were in Chicago before this. I was absolutely in Chicago, and so... Um, I had gotten a call that uh, said, you know, uh, Rob, you, you should really look at um, VCU Massey. And um, I started going, well, you know, that's in Richmond, right? And they were like, absolutely. And I said, uh, okay. I had known about the history and decided that I had already was looking at other cancer centers around the country. But when I came here, it was just an amazing, it was an amazing fit. I mean, I met the people, I met the doctors, I met the people from the community. And importantly, I think I had a personal connection. My grandmother um, is from uh, just outside of Middlesex mm. uh, and moved from Virginia to New York uh, when in the 40s. 
she moved because, in her words, at that time, Virginia was just, in her words, just, you know, she's still from Virginia. She says it was just a different place and not exactly a place for her. So um, when I started looking, I told her that I was coming back to Richmond. I think she was worried in, in the beginning. She was like, why would you look there? And I said, I said, listen, because when I went there, they have an amazing institution. And most of all, the, I've never had a president of a university ever tell me that the most important thing for him is, yes, that we get amazing uh, uh, scientists here. Yes, that we get these esteemed awards around grants, but that we do something for the community. That I had never heard. And so literally, I was sold that this was the right place for me. Uh, I have to ask you, there are people that must have brought up the old uh, bones that were unearthed in a well at the Medical College of Virginia. This is going back in the 90s, if you will. And the huge traumatic conversation about racial reconciliation and justice that we had just as you got here. The monuments went down, the street was erupting. Uh, things that were kind of politely swept under the rug before you are really in sharp relief now. Oh, man. It, it, you know, talk about the New South. Uh, we are in the midst of that. And, you know, it also uncovers uh, this whole concept of as we're getting through COVID, the mistrust, right? You know, People may not know exactly what was happening in those wells, but you still hear stories of why African-Americans would say, don't go near those hospitals because they might take you, hmm. right? You know, one thing I wanted to make sure that as we were going through um, this COVID that uh, really dawned on me is that we blame the victim a lot. We talk about, well, why don't those people actually want and trust this miracle drug that we have? Well, there are lots of reasons why they shouldn't, most of them historical. And the historical reasons we try to sweep them under the rug, most people may not know the names of, for example, Tuskegee, but they know that they have some sense of distrust for the medical system. Hmm. So for me, coming into Richmond, knowing its history, knowing why my grandmother left and said, I'm never coming back to Virginia, <laughs> and actually having an appointment at VCU Massey meant the world to me. It also meant that it was an opportunity of many of the other cancer centers the place that the first or the you know African-American, second only African-American in the 50-year history of the program ever gets in a VCU Massey at Richmond was not lost on me. Hmm. For background, back in 94, when uh, the Contos Medical Science Building was being constructed at the old MCV, which is now VCU, workers discovered an old well believed to be constructed before the Civil War. At the bottom of the well were human remains and other items that were sent to the Smithsonian Institution for study. It's been determined that uh, the majority of these 44 people's remains were found are of African or African descent. And so, you know, in the quote, going back from one of the archaeologists, these are people who we knew were enslaved, people who would have built this city, who built MCV, and whose bodies upon which the medical sciences now rest. Yeah, I mean, wow, I, you, right? I mean, it's, it's, and it's a heavy thing. And for you to come here as the first African-American director of Massey Cancer— and the second in the nation was crazy, right? Right. But think about what you just said and also that most of our modern-day uh, surgical gynecology also came from the experimentation on African slave women because J. Marion Sims and others at the time felt that they sensed pain different mm. than whites. And so this is a consistent story of how African-Americans and uh, those people during the time were seen as being lesser uh, and having differences. You know, the crazy part is in 2016, I believe they took a group of students, medical students, and says, are there black and white differences in skin thickness or are there black and white differences in um, more recently um, in pain sensation? And the vast majority of people still said yes. 
That means we're not doing a good job of telling people that it's not so much our skin tone and our biology, but it's the structure in place in which people live that causes the differences in our outcomes. That is the critical piece. People tend to talk about African-Americans having more comorbid diseases, and they usually say, well, it's their behaviors. Come on, quit playing. It's all the stuff that was associated with the redlining things of the 30s. You just described some other things of the urban renewal programs in the 1950s that took many of these robust communities and just chopped them at their knees that are contributing to structures that contribute to, you know, uh, more at-risk sort of diseases. So, I want to make sure that we are bringing this back to biology certainly matters to some extent. I'm not going to say biology doesn't matter at all, but the life expectancy and your outcome and your overall health, your zip code determines your ZNA, your zip code and neighborhood of association is a much better predictor of that, right, than your DNA. And to me, what you just described, the issues around J. Marion Sibs, the issues of this well, the issue of living in an environment where you don't have access to these things also play into why certain populations have higher, quote, risks of cancer and are dying from cancer more frequently. We learned this through COVID, too. It wasn't that African-Americans, interestingly enough, were different than white folks and were more susceptible. We looked at, you know, polymorphisms. What we found is just your place in space, mm-hmm. that insurance predicted a better outcome, just like it does in cancer. That education attainment predicted a better outcome, just like it does in cancer. And so we also have to be mindful that the science uh, and the hardcore basic sciences and the scientific miracles also have limitations. And so when they're limited in those blind spots, this is where we have to get back to looking at communities. And that's the freshness that we've brought to this cancer center. And that's the message that both the uh, president and the board and uh, and uh, the Massey board and other people really um, were aligned with. And that's uh, <laughs> Bottom line, why I'm here. You saw the stat a week ago and kind of underscores what you said with, with ZNA, but U.S. life expectancy plunged in 2020, the, the year the pandemic broke, especially for black and Hispanic Americans. You saw it, it multiplied uh, in the largest drop since World War II. You're not supposed to see these things happen. It's right, but an ongoing trajectory. I mean, I'm from Iran, and I talked to my dad about his dad, and you'd be lucky to have survived a heart attack or 58 or 59 and make it to 60. God bless my dad. He's 84. You know, croup almost killed my dad at age two. Mm-hmm. My son, he got a steroid injection. He was out of the hospital. We're all supposed to be kind of riding this, this longer life expectancy trajectory together, but we're really not. Uh, We are so not. And I think that if COVID has done us one favor, it's to put a brighter light and an exclamation point on that very issue. However, it's not all doom and gloom. It actually also speaks to the fact that if we do pay some attention to place and space, if we do pay attention to how we can make screenings more accessible, how we can actually um, make the Uh, miracle drugs that we have more affordable and more accessible, we can actually reduce the, the gap. Now, listen, from 1990 to 2016, 2017, the black white disparities of death from cancer shrank from roughly about 33% back in 1990 to 14%. What that says is that we can make progress when we actually put our mind to it. Um, And I've been telling everyone, people that these disparities, they act like they just happen. You know, in 1918, there's a pandemic, but you remember there was the biggest race wars around the country, too. The Tulsa, right? You had the Elaine, Arkansas. You had all the stuff that was happening in Chicago and D.C. So where people were literally being killed in the streets, literally. 
So don't tell me that this is the first time that we've had a pandemic, right, in this racial unrest. It's always been here. In fact, when people talk about health disparities, I tell them, go back to W.E.B. Du Bois' paper. It's called the Philadelphia Paper in 1899. He Actually, quintessentially, is one of the best sociologists of his time, described exactly what we have today, mm-hmm. this inequity. So we know what the problem is. We've been studying for God knows 100 plus years. We even know some of the solutions. The issue isn't that we don't know disparities exist, that we don't know how to reduce them. It's we haven't had a consistent will to do so. And we're hoping that by leading local efforts here at VCU Massey, that other cancer centers throughout the country and other health systems will actually pay more attention to the social determinants of health, our communities, and that medicine can get you 75% of the way there, but gaining trust is something different. Dr. Robert Wynn, director of the VCU Massey Cancer Center. Um, Welcome to you, my new neighbor. I'm so lucky that my town has you. And please consider this an open invite to come back on. Oh, I would love to. And thank you. And thank you for what you do. Appreciate you. My pleasure. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. Hello to our radio listeners in Virginia, up in Washington, D.C., down in Asheville, North Carolina, and out west in SoCal. Message me if you'd like us on your air. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Earlier, we were talking to Dr. Robert Wynn of the VCU Massey Cancer Center. We were talking about the prognosis broadly for cancer, which is so multifaceted. And there are so many different ways we could have taken the conversation into therapy and um, history and reconciliation and and, uh, racial differences and risk and outcome. And I thought to myself, this is actually precisely the show where I wanted to have uh, my guest, Tracy Eagle, accompanied by Vicki Brooks. They are known as Trey and Vicki. Let me give you the backstory. I wrote a ton of my book at a, uh, a coffee shop, let's say, by the University of Richmond, and I met a very generous and beloved uh, barista who I was told was in and out of chemotherapy constantly, but found strength, derived strength by helping other people, was an empath to the max. Uh, Tracy Eagle, uh, you and I struck up a conversation and you told me uh, how at, at a time when, you know, your cancer was metastasizing and your personal life could have been in turmoil, you derived meaning in your life and therapy, if you will, and strength out of helping the family of one Heather Heyer. Give us the backstory. Well, yeah, it was actually, you know, out of a tragedy that um, I came to find Heather's song. And I was going through my first few months of going through treatment of the metastatic breast cancer uh, regime that I was going through and the regimen that uh, going through radiation and then going through the different uh, stages of of medicine and injections I was getting and just getting used to the, hey, it's back and uh, this is how it's going to be now. And it's, it's, uh, it's not a death sentence. It is something that I will live with for the rest of my life. And in so I took that, and I, I've stayed positive with it. And unfortunately, I was on the couch that Saturday uh, watching the news when I saw August 11th, 2017 happen, and I couldn't believe it. I uh, still can't believe it at times. Can't believe we're coming up on the four-year anniversary of it. But I took that, and I've just found such inspiration through the mother of Heather Heyer, and that's Susan Burrow. And I just found so much strength and, and courage in what she was doing and what she was 
going through. And they were live streaming, I, I believe, they were live streaming the uh, memorial of Heather. And watching that, I just couldn't, like, I was... I just couldn't speak. Well, time out. This was the Unite the Right rally. Famously, uh, sadly, Charlottesville's become synonymous in some respects for this. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, we mentioned Charlottesville. It's like one of those one-word events, even though it's a a great university town. It's an hour away from us here from Richmond. Uh, There was that counter-protest there on the Charlottesville Mall, and she was – she was run over by a, a white supremacist in a Dodge Challenger. And where were you when you got that news? I was on the couch. Watching, I turned the TV on, and I saw what you know looked like to me they were filming. Like Steven Spielberg was down there filming a you know some movie or something. It did not connect with me that what I was watching was happening live or happening as it was happening just right down the road from us. And then you know to, to see you know as the news was coming in to see oh my God, this is this is our neighbor, Charlottesville, and. I, I'm, I was ignorant. I had no idea that race and hate was so big and so prominent still. It did not, it did not hit me. I just like, wow, there, there's something there that um, I, I need to tap into. And then, of course, following um, Susan's beautiful eulogy of Heather. Her mother, Susan Bro. Susan Bro, yes. And... I, I started. I started writing. Uh, a friend of mine had had written on one of her social media. Um, she just wrote, "People, please love." And that those little words. I just sat up on the couch, and and and, and this was a few days later, of course. And I sat up, and I was like, "Sandy, I'm like, hold my beer. You know, there's something there. There's something uh, that I was just like, just just pleading to people, please love." And at that time, I just wanted to hug Susan. I wanted to hug all of Heather's friends. And and uh, I just started writing this simple, simple little song of, of, you know, loss and love and forgiveness and people please love. And uh, next thing I know, I'm down in Atlanta, Georgia, presenting it to Jan Smith, who the is— The Grammy-nominated producer. Yeah. And she said, Tracy, this is, um, this is beautiful— she says, I would, I would love, I'd be honored to um, produce it and let me know when you're ready because I was going through some vocal cord damage that I had done. Uh, that's another story another time. From the cancer? <laughs> no, not from cancer. I, um, I had a vocal cord hemorrhage that um, occurred. And um, so I went through a series of, I had vocal cord surgery, then I had vocal cord therapy, and I was on no speaking for weeks and driving everyone crazy. <laughs> and so, uh, and so when I was ready to go back, in the meantime, you know, we're we're kind of like going back and forth here. I had reached out to Susan Bro because I told Mama Jan, I said, "Well, I'm not doing anything till I get her blessing." I wasn't just going to write a song and 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 put it out there, and you know, I needed something for it to be helpful for what can it go towards. And at that time, at the same time, Susan was on Ellen mm-hmm. and Ellen helped launch the Heather Heyer Foundation with, with Susan Bro, and said, I said, aha, there it is. You know, you know, proceeds can go to the Heather Heyer Foundation. That's what I want it to do. Mm. You know, cause I didn't want to just write this song and, and, you know, benefit me whatsoever. I wanted it to help 
And um, well, how did Vicky come in? Vicky, where were you? When did you find out about it? You know, Tracy, up your bass guitar. <laughs> just recently, actually, on the yeah, bass guitar. Yeah, keyboards. <laughs> use keys. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Tracy and I, you know, we go back for a, a, quite a while here. Um, she actually approached me at church one day. Um, she had just come back after having cancer and had a Boston Red Sox do rag on, basically, um, and approached me and said, "Hey, can I come sing in the choir?" And I'm like. Heck yeah, come on, you know. So there's no auditions here. Let's let's sing. So we started singing, and she goes, I, I'm just going to try to play the guitar for a little bit. I said, you know, yeah, absolutely. Pull the guitar out. Let's do it. She goes, but I'm never going to play in front of anybody. I said, are you kidding me right now? She said, no. I said, you've got the ability to be able to do this. Play the guitar. She was adamant. I'm not going to be able to do this. I, I can't do this in front of people. And then the more <laughs> we practiced, the more confident she became. And she said, you know what? I, I think I can do this. And so to go from there to her actually seeing what was going on in Charlottesville and writing this song, I mean, and, and Jan Smith actually said, this is anthemic. And it, it truly is. Um, you know, it's just one of those things. It's a, a small song, but hopefully it has, you know, some meaning to a lot of people. Tell us about the journey of actually recording a song these days. I mean, it used to be having to get time of day from a music studio or yeah. this or that. Now, pretty much all this stuff is going straight to streaming. It's not like you're worried about CD sales or right, an right. album. What was what was that process like? Wow. It was it was lengthy. It was um it was not easy. It was a matter of getting tracks um, recorded and sent to Mama Jan. In Atlanta, and that's where our buddy Frank Coleman uh, comes into play because he was the mastermind behind a lot of the guitars you hear in Heather's song on the on the original track. And Frank would send the the click tracks to Mama Jan, and because that was going to be the bass that she uses for when I went down to record my vocals at Jan Smith Studios. Mm-hmm. And so everything was, you know, Mama Jan goes, y'all have done your homework. You know, you did everything exactly to the T what I wanted, you know, I needed from you. And so when we went down to Atlanta, man, I was in the vocal booth and we were like, I don't know. I don't know how many takes. It wasn't that many vocal takes that it took because we did really well. But you have to prepare. And if you don't prepare, then you will spend hours and hours in the studio and you don't want to do that you want to you know you i mean i i personally love spending hours in the studio just playing around but when you're going in to record and you're serious about getting this song done it's you need to have done your homework and you need to have gotten things set and ready to go so that you know we had all the guitars all the um stuff that bells and jingles that that Mama Jan needed and that she would, you know, produce and add around to it as needed. Then she would send it back to me and go, listen to this. How does this sound? And I was like, yeah, I love that. I love that. And, you know, and when in this process you told me, I remember seeing you at, at the cafe that your cat jumped on your chest. Oh, well, see, that's what started the entire, the entire thing. It was 2016. Uh, around, I was telling Vicky this on the way over here, the story. It was about right before Christmas because I was rehearsing with Vicky, Breath of Heaven. And I was like, God, Vicky, I'm sorry. I can't get under those notes. I said, Herman, Herman, that's our tux, tuxy cat. I said, Herman jumped off my chest. And I, I don't you know, he did it weeks ago, but I'm fine. But man, I feel like he broke a rib or something. 
And I was having a hard time getting under the, the notes for Breath of Heaven. But, and anyhow, we did it. And so then that brings us into New Year's. It was in the January. And then February, I'm like, this is, that does it. Because I was just like, man, this won't go away. This stupid pain in my rib will not go away. And I know rib injuries take a long time. Sure. You know, I've heard about that. So, I, you know, my wife says, why don't you go ahead and call, you know, Dr. Schaefer up, you know, and see, you know, my oncologist. Go in and get, you know, because it's about time for me to get my, you know, routine checks. I go in to get checked. And because I was cancer-free. I was almost 10 years cancer-free. And I go in and she goes, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's take a look at this. And it was, you know, the next day she goes, I need to see you. You know, we got a, we got a game plan, and it was like, okay, let's do this. Let's and make this history. was a metastasis. Yeah, it was metastasized to my rib, and to my spine, and so far that is it. We did radiation to knock those suckers out, and uh, so far there's been no further growth. There's been no new growths at all. I got to ask you though, in playing the guitar, your fingers must be very sensitive. They are through at times. chemotherapy and radiation. Yeah, there's there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of people that go through neuropathy with their fingers, mm. and fortunately, that has not happened to me. I what I go through, and Vicky can attest to this, is I get rib pain still, and after I've been sitting and playing too long, I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> I need to get up, and move around because you know that that's something I'm always going to have. Um, and it's just from you know the holes and the divots and whatever that's been created from, you know, having gone through the radiation of it and 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 you know, I get checked every quarter, every what three months, two or three months, I get my scans and you know, last one is flying colors. That's great. Well, I for one am quite inspired in our conversations. And you approach me, you know, my cold brew order and everything, and you heard <laughs> me on the radio, and I'm I'm inspired by how. At a time when I think you were absolutely justified to close off the world and concentrate on yourself and your own physical health, your rib cage, your, your examinations, your white blood cell levels, your mental health, you found strength and meaning and you gave someone some degree of, of kind of immortality in helping her memory and helping her mother. And you then parlayed that energy very visibly. I'm talking to you, and you're strengthened by that. Thank and you. if I don't cut myself off, I'm going to weep. I mean, this is oh full disclosure. Where's my water? But that's the beauty in this. <laughs> and to that end, I am going to cut myself off because you are going to perform two beautiful songs for us, both Heather's song and What's Next. So please, Trey and Vicky, take the stage. It's yours. Thank you. People, people. People, people, please love. People, 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 please love. I miss your face, I miss your smile, your warm embrace, your warm embrace. The love you shared, the lives you saved, I'd never ever cross their minds. Cause in came People, 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 please love. People, 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 please love. Life's so short, 
Lost will hurt eternally Please love and laugh And sing out loud And for the sake of all things Hold your sweet ones close and tight As that old song says Let it be Painful ending reality None of us are actually
my friend This can lead to the end of that hate So here we are Waiting to see what's next Here we are Waiting to see what's next Ooh, what's next Love and kindness Shouldn't be so hard Respect and honor can break down walls. Keep it real, teach it well, so love can heal. Here we are, waiting to see what's next. Here we are, waiting to see what's next. of us dies and a piece of us dies it's time to save another sister or brother killing each other it's time to save another sister or brother killing each other what's next here we are people loving each other what's next here we are Trying to help each other, what's next? Here we are, making a difference, what's next? Oh, what's next? You were listening to Tracy Eagle and Vicki Brooks, known as Trey and Vicki, with Heather's song and What's Next. It was such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Full disclosure, special thanks to engineer John Valentine. We podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Pods at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. Hello to our radio listeners on WERA 96.7 FM. Get in touch to carry us on your station. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Thank you.